So we're continuing verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Through Matthew's gospel, we are now in chapter 21, the first day of the week of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves in the passage and the story this morning of Jesus cleansing the temple. So the scripture's been read. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we do love you and praise you. Our hearts do declare you Lord of all. We we look forward with excitement and the wonder and thrill of our soul to collectively one day on that great day of the Lord to crown you Lord of all. And so as as we gather here, it's really just supposed to be as the gathered body of Christ here to worship you, our Lord and Savior. It's, It's a little picture, it's a little taste of of heaven, and even we've heard it sung, in in 10,000 years we will have just begun to understand and to be in wonder and in awe of the glory of the Lord, and and that's what church gathering is to be, a, a little taste of heaven on earth. So we thank you, Father, for the opportunity, the privilege, the grace to be here, to be able to gather, to be able to worship, to have Bibles in our own language, to be able to sing loud songs of praise, and then to study together the, the passion of Christ, the week, the final week of the ministry of our Lord here on the earth, and realize that everything that's done is is in many ways so significant and communicating to us who the Lord is and His salvation. So, Father, we, we come as Your children today to, to be filled with the wonder and the glory of Christ our Savior, to be changed, to be challenged, to be convicted, to be equipped, to be encouraged, to be made new. We pray, Father, that you would speak as only you can speak, Lord. It's a, it's a fearful thing. It's a wondrous thing to be able to stand up before your people and speak your word. But, Father, you speak much louder than I ever can. And that's the voice we're leaning into here today. We pray, God, that you would, you would do a wonder in our hearts. Lord, we're so full of self. We get so full and entangled by the world around us. We lose sight, Lord. We lose hunger. We lose thirst for the things of God. We get distracted, Lord, by things around us. We get, Lord, our our motives and our hearts get so twisted and turned by our relationships, Lord, around us. And we just need you to set us anew and set us aright today. Build your church. And we're going to give you the glory and the praise for everything you do. In Christ's name, amen. So the text today, verses 12 through 17, it's, 
It's really thematically a repeat of the closing section in chapter 20 and of the opening section in chapter 21 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So there at the end of chapter 20, if you recall, as Jesus is, as he nears Jerusalem, he heals two blind men, and those blind men are praising Christ, and they are identifying him as the son of David. And so you have in that section the actions of Jesus and the witness of others about Jesus are testifying to who he is. He is none other than the son of David. He is none other than the promised Messiah. And that theme then essentially repeats itself in the opening verses of of chapter 21 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is standing at point A... And he explains to his disciples everything that will take place, even the conversations that will take place with precise detail over at point B. And then when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the crowds welcome him and they cheer and they celebrate him singing Hosanna to the son of David. And so here for a second time, end of chapter 20, opening of chapter 21, the actions of Jesus and the testimony of others concerning Jesus are revealing who Jesus is, the Messiah, the long-awaited son of David who would come to rule and establish a kingdom that would endure forever. Now, if the opening verses 1 through 11 of 21 were the repeat, then I guess today's text is the three-peat. Because here you have again in verses 12 through 17, the actions of Jesus revealing who he is and the witness of others concerning Jesus revealing who he is as the son of David. And note, for even further convincing, that in all three of these instances scripture is testifying to who Jesus is so you have the actions of Jesus testifying you have the witness of others testifying and Messiah would open blinded eyes Zechariah prophesied the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a colt Psalm 8 says that God has put it into the hearts of children to praise him and those scriptures walk right side by side with those three events that we've just read about in the life of Christ. So you see, the closer Jesus gets to the cross, these varied ways that evidence who he is just begin to stack up one upon the other, back to back to back. The closer he gets, the the more multiplied are the witnesses to who he is. And that leaves no doubt whatsoever that, remember, just in a matter of days from where we are in this text, just in a matter of days before the week is out, he will be hanging on a cross. The closer he gets to that, these witnesses begin just to amplify their voice over and over and over again to who he is, leaving no doubt the man hanging on that cross is indeed the son of David. Indeed, the Messiah is dying on a cross. 
Therefore, when Jesus hung on the cross, God must have been doing something great and something awesome and and something wondrous. There can really be no other explanation. If Jesus is God in the flesh, then man cannot kill him unless that happens to be part of his plan. And so it was. And what an extraordinary, wondrous, gracious plan it is that dying on the cross, Jesus would pay for our sin, my sin and your sin, that we might find life and forgiveness and life everlasting in him. So let's see this three-peat today and see these witnesses as they continue to Shout who the Messiah must be. First of all, again, the actions of Jesus identify him. The temple was to be a place of worship. One would come to the temple, he would he would offer a sacrifice for his sin. God had put in place the sacrificial system as a as a substitute, a substitutional payment for our sin. So you would offer a sacrifice in order that for, at least for those sins that you have already committed, there there would be a temporary atonement, there would be a temporary covering of those sins because a death has occurred on behalf of those sins and and therefore you could be welcomed into the presence of God. You could be reconciled to God, your relationship reestablished with the Lord And thus, having been cleansed of sin, then one could approach the presence of God, enjoy the worship of God. And remember, this is a season of Passover here in our text. So people have traveled from all around into Jerusalem. And they're coming there, of course, for worship, to worship the Lord. And so the temple officers, they have created, they have devised a, a, an ingenious plan here to, to ease the burden of those who are traveling from far, traveling from out of town, coming in. And, and, and in the same way, they could make some money on the side, make some money in the meantime. So you could purchase an animal for your sacrifice right there at the temple instead of having to have a, a take bring the animal with you on the road you could ease your travel if you didn't have a the specified sacrifice you could trust that there'll be a specified sacrifice there at the temple so so kind of leaves you take, takes away all those burdens and cares from you. you just have to show up in in Jerusalem but that turned into quite the money scheme for the chief priest First of all, they had to approve your sacrifice. It became kind of a supply and demand, and then they could set the price. So only this sacrifice is going to be worthy enough, is going to meet the standard to be your sacrifice. And this is the only one in town, by the way. So if you want it, if you want to worship the Lord, this is how much it will cost you. And so rather than the temple being a place of solemn worship, uh, approaching the Lord, a place of celebratory praise to God, a place of beseeching the mercy and grace of God, of offering thanksgiving to God for all of His goodness and faithfulness throughout the years. This had become a place of extortion. 
Rather than hearing the sound of prayer, you would hear the drowning sounds of of hustled bargaining back and forth and underhanded price gouging and, and what a sight to behold. The very location, the very place, the very right at the very door of where one was to meet with God. So the first thing Jesus does when he enters in Jerusalem is to cleanse the temple of all that defiled it. So if you want to see holy, righteous anger of God, look no further than this scene at the temple. Remember the previous scene, Jesus, meek and mild, riding into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey. Now we see Jesus almost in, in the very next scene, in the very next episode of Jesus' life. He's here in the temple and he's driving out the buyers and sellers. He's overturning tables and chairs. He's pushing all of this out of the temple to cleanse the temple of all of this chaos and greed and underhanded and mockery and everything that's making the temple into Nothing of what it was meant to be. Nothing stirs the holy wrath of God as to turn the worship of God into some type of mockery and to to belittle the presence of God into nothing more than some kind of trifling, frivolous, common event. To gut the wonder of approaching the Almighty by making it about us and not about Him. Worship is a glorious encounter, a wonder of grace that that sinners can be welcomed into the presence of God. Worship is serious. Worship matters. Worship is the purpose for which we were created. Worship is the, the nourishment of our spiritual souls. When we turn worship into making much of us rather than making much of God, into a means for our own gain, to promote our own brand or build our own empire, God is not pleased. We often find the Lord throughout the Old Testament speaking of the idolatrous worship and the hypocrisy of the worship and the emptiness of the worship of those who were coming before the Lord, seemingly coming before the Lord, and yet their hearts were far from him. This is the scene that Jesus finds at the temple. There, there, there's, no, there's no heart here for the Lord. There's no seeking and and thirsting for the Lord. There's no gratitude and thanksgiving for the Lord. It's all grabbing and shouting and going through the motions, just getting what I need and making the offering and and going through this process. There's nothing of the wonder of that, that God has made a way that I can see him, that I can be before him, that I can be reconciled to him, forgiven by him, that my sins can be removed. There, there's no awe and, and, and wonder and gratitude and praise. It's, it's just hustle and bustle and greed. And the holy wrath of God 
is enraged when worship is turned to nothing. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, my house will be called a house of prayer. He puts those two passages together to, to set forth the purpose of the temple and to declare what has been done to the temple, how it's been defiled by their actions, by their heart. And so through his actions and, and by his use of these words of Old Testament Scripture, Jesus is, is setting himself before the temple Remember, he's not just made this declaration. He's just removed. He's just driven out those who were involved in this money scheme. Now he quotes these verses. He's setting himself before the temple as the one who is carrying out the will of God. This is what this house is supposed to be. I'm going to make sure that it is. You have defiled the house in this way. I'm going to remove that defilement. He, he puts himself in the place before the people as the one who carries out the will of the Father. And in a very real and true sense, this was his house. When he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, it was his house. He is God in the flesh. And knowing that the cross is just on the horizon for him, we could very simply say of these actions and words of Jesus, he sets his house in order before he lays down his life. His actions reveal who he is. And then secondly, the praise of the children reaffirmed by Scripture identify him. The praise of the children in verse 14, after removing what defiled the temple, Jesus begins to do the work of the temple, ministry, service. And he removes, first of all, he removes idolatrous sin, and then he begins to remove the stain of sin. All of the work of Christ is a removal of the presence of sin in our lives. He drives out the rebellious ones and then he heals the hurting ones who are seeking him. You see, the temple was to be a, a picture of heaven on earth. And that's precisely what Jesus returns it to in this passage. Sin has no place in the presence of God. It will not last in the presence of God. So Jesus not only cleanses the temple, he not only cleanses the space, the temple area of the sin that had infiltrated the temple, but he also cleansed those who were, were seeking him from the effects of sin in the temple. Notice it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. This is nothing less than a view of heaven. Sin is not welcome there. Sin's effects will have no place there. There will be no disabilities. There will be no death. There will be no sickness. 
And that's what the miracles of Jesus were testifying and communicating, that, that this one who in this location at this particular time is driving away the effects of sin and the presence of sin is the one who will drive it away for all time when he returns. The reason why our bodies are broken at times, the, the reason why this world is broken around us, it all leads back to the presence of sin, the corruption of sin since Genesis 3. We are sinners and we're living in a sinful world. And sometimes we face the consequences of our own sin. Sometimes we live with the consequences of others' sin. Sometimes we just live in, in, in brokenness because the world is cloaked in a blanket of sin. We are fallen. We are corrupt all around us. And Jesus came to earth from heaven to bring heaven to earth. And to one day bring us to heaven. That, that's why the son of David is going headed to the cross in a few days. That's the plan. To remove sin and to recreate and reestablish paradise. To undo all that Adam has done in his disobedience, Christ will redo and recreate in his obedience. And so every time Jesus opened blinded eyes in the temple that day, every time he invigorated lame legs that day, he was displaying what heaven will be. The presence of sin is removed by the presence of God. He was showing, Christ was displaying what salvation in him means. And so, when all of this is happening, all of these remarkable things are happening, Christ is driving out sin and all of its manifestations. Right there in the temple, the children rally a, a chorus of praise declaring of Jesus the same praise that the crowds did when he rode into town, the same praise that the blind men gave him on the way to Jerusalem, Hosanna to the son of David. The children were declaring, this is the Messiah. Hosanna means save us. The children were declaring, we need to be saved. This is the Savior. He is the Son of David. Notice when Jesus was challenged about this, challenged about this title being attributed to him, from the standpoint of the chief priests and the scribes, it's, it's, it's one thing for him to, to come and, and mess up our, our side gig it's another thing for all of, this, all of this crowd to be in here, all of these people to be in the way. It's quite another for people to be calling him the Messiah, and they challenge him. And notice when they challenge him, he didn't, he didn't quiet or correct the children. He received that praise, and he received it as being scripturally true. He testified to the accuracy of what they were doing by appealing to Scripture. That he was the son of David. Just as Psalm 8 verse 2 says, God puts it into the hearts of babies to praise him when they are in his presence. 
Now, this isn't the first time this has happened with Jesus, is it? Remember, John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb when Mary, who was pregnant with Christ, came to visit her. God puts it into the hearts of children to praise God when they are in his presence. There's a show on TV called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And we all laugh about things that our children have said. We all talk about how children kind of let the cat out of the bag. They, if you want to find out what's going at home, just talk to the kids. And sometimes kids say the greatest, truest things. Oh, I know all three of my kids just got nervous. They, they just thought I was going to say something about it. But I didn't. But I didn't. Sometimes kids say the greatest, truest things. Hosanna to the son of David. So here we have the actions of Jesus identifying him. We have the praise of children reaffirmed by Scripture identifying him. Third... We see the priest and the scribes adamantly reject him. The children are praising him. And the priests and scribes are furious with him. Right there in the temple, you have one group that is shouting praise to him, and you have one group that is boiling hot with anger with him. The Bible says they were indignant. Which, which means that you're angry or resentful over a perceived unfair treatment. You see, from their perspective, Jesus has, has rode into town and he has stolen the show. He has come to the temple and he has taken over. This is our place. This is our business. We set the rules. Jesus put an end to their money scheme and instead of tables making them money, the floor is filled with all these blind people and all these lame people in the way crowding the place. What are they even doing here? They, they are unclean. To them, that's, that's what was defiling the temple, hurting people. People who were hurting Not price gouging, that couldn't be defiling the temple. And on top of all of that, this place is filled with screaming kids calling him the Messiah. It's just too much. Who does he think he is? And you want to say, haven't you been paying attention? And so they say, don't you hear what these are saying? How can you go along with this? How can you, you be thought of and, and, and portrayed as being the son of David? Why are you being so underhanded like this? Why are you allowing this to continue? They were so gripped with greed and so caught up with the loss of their sway over the crowds. They, they couldn't see what was so plain to see. 
They were so caught up in themselves and how everything in the temple was about them that they never stopped to think he might really be the son of David. After all, every single blind person that's walked by him left him seeing. Every single lame person that's been carried to him left him walking. He just might be the son of David. They, that never entered their mind because their hearts were so darkened with self. And their minds were so, so convinced of their own set of religion and their own thought of the scripture and their own mind of who the Messiah is going to be. That they could not even entertain Jesus might be him. It wasn't as if they didn't have ample evidence, was it? Even the scripture says, Matthew says here, and this is, this is shocking It really is shocking here in verse 15. Watch this with me. But when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they saw it. They were there. They witnessed it. Blinded eyes were open. Just let that sink in. It's one thing for us to, to talk about it in the sense of this is an historical thing that happened. It would be another thing to actually be there, wouldn't it? To actually be there in the temple and see many, not just one. It wasn't a blind man. It was and the blind and the lame. It was many blind people, many lame people. Over and over and over and over and over. Lame, useless, crippled, atrophied legs were made strong and new. Listen, King is not always believing. It was right there. If there's ever been an argument, For salvation is by grace alone. Here it is in the temple. It's only by God's grace that we see Christ and trust Christ and proclaim Christ and embrace Christ because these folks saw Christ in the middle of removing sin from the temple. They wouldn't believe. There should be a tremendous humility and gratefulness and thankfulness that absolutely floods our hearts to recognize you're not saved because you figured it out. You're not saved because you're a better group than this group. You're not saved because you're better morally than the rest of those You and I are saved by grace and grace alone. They just refused to have any other Messiah other than the Messiah they had imagined. The Messiah who fit their plan. The Messiah who would do things their way. He just wasn't the Jesus they were looking 
four. And that brings us to this call for our conclusion today. We cannot be as the chief priests and scribes. If we're waiting for a Jesus that fits our plan, that fits our idea, that thinks the way we think and kind of goes along with what we want the Bible to say, what we want salvation to be, if we're waiting for that Jesus, we'll never find him. There's only one. Jesus didn't come to be what we want him to be. Jesus came to make us all that God intends for us to be. Jesus didn't come to look like a mirror. Jesus came to make us new. Look at the wonderful things he has done. I encourage you today to take a walk by the cross. See Christ dying for your sin and know that that man hanging on the tree is without a doubt the son of David. His actions testify over and over again. Others have testified over and over again. The scriptures testify over and over and over again. See him there dying on a cross. Why? For your sin. To reconcile you. To make a way for you to enter the presence of God. Worship God. Be reconciled to God. Be forgiven. Be made new. Have eternal life. Walk by the cross today. See the wonderful things he has done. Stoop down and look inside the empty tomb today. Know that Christ is alive. Therefore, he is the resurrection and the life. Life is found in him and him alone. Look at the wonderful things he has done. And let's join in the praise of these children. Hosanna. Save us. Repent and trust him today. Give him your life and you will have life eternal. Let's pray. Father, we have seen Christ today and, and we have also seen something of what it takes to see Christ today. There's no doubt in our hearts that Christ is Lord, Christ is God, Christ is Messiah, Christ is Savior. And there's also equally no doubt from Scripture that the only way we can see that is by grace. So all of us who are believers today, Father, we respond to you today with praise and thanksgiving and glory and honor. That you've opened our eyes and convicted our hearts and shown us the glory of Christ and drew us to you by the Spirit and spoken the words of, of truth in our hearts. And if we are apart from Christ, Lord, today, we, we ask you, Father, that you might do the same great work in us to draw us and make us and recreate us and 
that we might this day be born again. That right here in this church, just like in the temple, the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, our alive Savior and Lord, might be ridding this place even now of sin, sin in our hearts. Sin in our hearts by convicting us, Lord, and showing us and us confessing and repenting today, cleansing this place, cleansing our lives of sin. Removing sin, Father, in, in the sense of those of us who are apart from Christ have, have seen him now and desire him now. And we don't care what anybody else in this place thinks. We, we must have Christ. Just like those blind people and lame people in the temple that day, in the church this day, we don't care what people say. We're coming to Jesus. Lord, do that work of cleansing in our hearts, in this church, in our lives. We give you the glory and praise for it all in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.